Would you turn with me, please, to the little book of Titus in the New Testament? Titus. Uh, This book may be a little bit difficult for you to find if you're not familiar with the New Testament. If you can find 1st or 2nd Timothy, it's the next uh, book coming just before the little book of Philemon and then the larger book of Hebrews. Somewhere Ogden Nash uh, refers to a certain Oliver Bolivar Bohm who up and rendered a slender tome. And uh, whenever I read the book of Titus, I think of Oliver Bolivar Bohm's tome. Because this is, though it's a very small book, it's a very profound little book, packed full of information about how to grow a church. I've read a number of church growth manuals, and uh, by comparison, this is a very unorthodox approach. But it makes a lot of sense. It has the ring of truth about it, and it's also very, very simple. Uh, Any fool can complicate things. It takes God to keep things simple. And uh, that's what he does. He tells us in a very simple way, a very precise way, a very sensible way, how to grow a church. Now, uh, the book is written by the Apostle Paul. As you know, it's written to Titus, who was his young friend and convert, a Gentile. Paul was a Jew. Titus was a Gentile. That's why he describes him here as his authentic or his true child in a common faith. They both had the same faith. They both had accepted Jesus Christ as as Messiah. After Paul was released from house uh, arrest in Rome, he traveled throughout the Roman Empire, may have gone as far west as uh, Britain, certainly went as far as Spain, turned back toward the east, eventually went to the island of Crete, went throughout the island of Crete, preaching in the cities there. Homer says there were over a hundred cities on this small island, so it was very densely populated, and uh, he planted churches throughout the uh, throughout the island. And then he, he, he left. He went on to... Uh, some other ministry left Titus behind to complete what he had uh, what he had begun. Titus, uh, I think, must have written Paul and asked why he was left behind, because I don't think he liked Crete. Uh, Crete's one of those places that you love to visit, but you would hate to live. Paul uh, describes one of their their own poets uh, later in in the chapter in verse twelve. Uh, he calls him one of their own prophets, but it was a Greek playwright by the name of Epimenides, who was a 6th century Greek writer, who describes uh, Cretans as always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And I'm sure you recognize the logical problem in Paul quoting a a Cretan to the effect that Cretans are always liars, because the question is, can you trust a Cretan if Cretans always lie? And that's why Paul goes on to say his testimony is true reasonable, logical fellow that he was. At least in this case, this Cretan was telling the truth. Crete was a very difficult place to live, a very hard place to minister, and Titus was finding uh, that it was a struggle to try to plant a church there. And Paul writes this book to tell him how to grow a church in a difficult set of circumstances. Now let's look at the introduction. Uh... Paul is sometimes very difficult to understand. Even Peter had a problem understanding Paul. It's hard to sort out his sentences. And uh, this, is, this is no exception. But uh, let me read it and then uh, give you an analogy that might help you to understand what Paul is saying. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, one of those uh, special uh, appointees by our Lord who had special authority, 
Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for, or to the end that, God's elect might believe, they might depend upon the Lord, they might count on him more, reckon on his his strength. This word, God's elect, is an Old Testament word for the people of God. It refers to us. Paul says he was an apostle in order to further the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of truth. So uh, his call is to impart truth to us, the knowledge about God. He teaches us to believe in God, and he teaches us about God. And all of this leads to godliness, he says. A faith and knowledge resting on the, the foundational truth is what he calls the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, in contrast to Cretans who do, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. What Paul is saying is that he was called to do two things. He was to further the faith and the knowledge of God's elect to the end that they might become more godly. And all of this rests, he says, on the foundation of what he calls the hope of eternal life. Hope, as you know in the New Testament, has no idea of contingency. It's, a, it's an expectancy about the future. There's a certainty in that, in that word that we don't have in our English word. Something yet to come. So all of this rests upon the hope of eternal life, which God promised. In other words, from the very beginning, God promised that he was going to love us to the end, regardless of what we're like. Once we come to know him, he's going to love us through thick and thin and right to the very end. Our destiny is fixed. It's certain. It's sure. It's something we can, we can count on. Now, let me give you an analogy that I think will help you to understand a little better what Paul is saying. Envision, if you will, a lighthouse. It's built on a solid uh, rock foundation. Picture in your mind a big slab of granite that goes all the way down to the core of the earth. And uh, on this granite slab, there is a lighthouse with two tiers. And on top of the, the lighthouse, of course, is a light. That's what a lighthouse is for. It's to shed light. Now, the bedrock, the firm foundation of the superstructure, as Paul puts it, the thing that everything rests upon, is the hope of eternal life, which God promised. And God doesn't tell lies. As Bob Dylan says, God don't... Uh, God don't... Uh, I can't think of what he said. He don't tell lies. Anyway, that's the point of it. God don't make promises that he don't keep. That's it, yeah. So that's, that's, the, that's the foundational truth, the promise upon which everything uh, rests. Our destiny is sure. I mentioned to the men uh, a year or so ago an uh, interview that I, I heard with uh, Dave Cott, who used to pitch for the Minnesota Twins. The interviewer asked him what it meant for him to be an evangelical Christian and a professional athlete. And Cott, who's a very thoughtful person, said, well, let me give you an illustration. He said, uh, last week uh, we were in a game. It was the bottom of the ninth. We were ahead by one run, bases loaded, runner on third base. Two outs, ran it to a full count. As I was winding up, he said, the thought went through my head, I'm glad that my destiny is not riding on this next pitch. Now, that's what it means to have that firm foundation of eternal life. Nothing we do or say is going to separate us from the love of Christ. As Paul puts it, not life, not death, not things present, nor not things past, not things to come. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We're secure in his love once we have acknowledged that love and come into relationship with him through Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. And on top of this foundation is the superstructure of the lighthouse, 
which is faith and knowledge. And these two work together. Uh, it's the knowledge of God that makes us believe in him more and trust him, and it's that trustful, open-heartedness that uh, enables us to acquire more of the knowledge of God. So Paul says these two things work together, faith and knowledge. That's how you grow, by knowing the truth and by believing. And then on the top is, is the lighthouse, which is godliness. Now, godliness is a, a, an obscure term to us. It connotes more than it originally denoted. We always think of uh, some uh, elderly woman dressed in black with a bun, with her hair in a bun, or uh, a man whose face would make a good frontispiece to the Book of Lamentations or something like that. But a godly person is just uh, an extremely attractive person who looks like our Lord looked in this world. That's all it is. It's a person who loves the Lord, who worships him, who's devoted to him, and who, wherever he or she goes, displays his likeness. Uh, any of you remember reading, at some point in your life, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's short story, The Great Stone Face? Interesting story. It, it takes place up in the New England states. I think it's in Vermont. It's been 30 years since I read it. And uh, there was a face, a stone face on the mountainside. It just uh, the contours of the mountain looked like the face of a man. And it was a face that had strength and character. And there was a young man growing up in that, in that town, and he, and he looked at that face, and he wanted to be like that person. And every day he'd, he'd, he'd gaze at the face. And, and finally, when he grew into adulthood, uh, people looked at him, and they realized that he looked just like the great stone face. Now, in a way, that's what, that's what godliness is. It's looking at the Lord Jesus. It's gazing at his face through the word and, and, and calling upon him to make us like himself in his character and, and in his love. Just the kind of person that he is. That's godliness, you see. That's uh, inner beauty. I noticed that Carolyn's speaking to the moms this, this next Friday just on that topic. Inner beauty. Outer beauty is one thing, and we all... Uh, we, you know, it's one thing to stay in shape outwardly, but, but what we really want, what our hearts hunger for is that inward beauty, which adorns, as Paul puts it, which adorns the gospel. It makes the gospel so attractive to people. I, you know, I don't think anybody out there in the world is very much impressed by the fact that we are mere Christians or that we are churchy or that we're involved in, in Christian activities. What, what makes the gospel attractive is the grace and the beauty of Christ that they see in us. Now, that's the goal of this book. You see, that's what, that's what Paul is after. He wants a church to grow up to maturity. Numbers are not the bottom line. Who cares about numbers? That never signifies success. The important thing is that people grow in grace and that we as a church go out into this community and, and live out the life of Christ there. Now, this idea of godliness or goodness, if we can put it that way. God's goodness seen in us uh, turns up over and over again in the book. Elders were told in verse 8, love what is good, in contrast to those in verse 16 who are unfit for doing anything good. And then in chapter 2, older women are to teach what is good, and young men are to look to Titus as an example of one who does what is good. And then in verse 14, God redeemed us from all wickedness. It's a quote from Psalm, one of the Psalms. And to purify himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. 
And then in chapter 3, verse 1, remind people to be ready to do whatever is good. And then in verse 8, that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. And then finally, verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. And he's not talking about charitable activities. He's talking about adorning the gospel, making it more attractive, being good in the right sense of the word. Now, the question is, then, how do you grow a church? How do you produce that kind of goodness, that likeness to God in, in people? Well, that's, that's the whole point of the book of Titus. That's Paul's concern. Now, let's uh, look at the way he goes about, uh, about the task. <clears throat> Verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. I get the impression that Titus wondered why he was left behind in, in Crete. He didn't really like it there. He must have written to Paul. And Paul said, I, I, I want to tell you why I left you behind. You need to straighten out what was left unfinished. Paul had planted churches there, preached the gospel, gathered Christians. He had begun the work. Now he had moved on to another place, and he left Titus behind to, to organize the church. Now, when we set out to organize the church, we start organizing. We think of uh, a five-year plan, and, and we set up committees, and we recruit leadership, and we raise funds, and we get our perk charts all set up, you know, and that's, that's the way we organize. But if you notice, Paul doesn't take that approach. Paul says, what, what you want to do first is look for a few good men. Interesting. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you and uh, the text emphasizes the pronoun I in other words this is not just some good advice this is an apostolic command this is the way to grow a church and uh, before you start organizing people the first thing you want to do is look for a few good men now uh, I want to stop at this point and say something. All right, so you understand where the direction we're going to be going over the next few weeks. I'm going to talk about manhood this morning. Uh, you women can sit there and nudge your husbands all you want. This doesn't concern you greatly. We're going to talk to men, but in two weeks we're going to talk to women. So uh, just just wait, men. You'll get your chance to nudge a little bit later on. But I want to talk to men, and I want to be misunderstood. I want to be very clear about this. Because I believe the Bible teaches that men are to be elders, and only uh, men may be appointed as elders. Now, I want to I say this. Women are not disciplettes of Christ. They are not subsets of men. They are intended to be mature, grown-up disciples of Jesus Christ. And it's my belief that women have all of the gifts that are given to the body of Christ. I mean, throughout, we're talking about women as a, as a group. You will find all of the gifts spread throughout that group. They can teach, they can disciple, they can counsel, they can give leadership. They're expected to uh, occupy themselves in ministry fully, just as men are. But I think the Bible... For some reason, I don't fully understand why, but for some reason, eldership is given to men. Now, we'll talk more about that later, but I, I just have to say that at the outset. But I want you to understand that women have a, as Ted Wise used to put it, a sphere of ministry, whereas men have a hemisphere. Uh, by that, they, in many ways, have a much larger sphere of ministry even than men do. So we're going to talk about that later. 
But I wanted to, I want to say that I am mostly concerned about developing manhood, and I'm not using that term generically this morning. I'm speaking to men. Now, let me say uh, something else, too. Some of you are thinking, oh, well, what difference does this make to me because uh, I'm never going to be an elder. I want you to understand that elders are not some special class of men who are more inclined toward uh, spirituality or who have a head start on everyone else and thus can be more spiritual than other men. Elders are just men. And God's expectations for men are the same right across the board. He wants us to be grown-up, mature disciples. And so when we talk about the qualifications for an elder, we're really talking about what it means to be a man. That's all. Paul says in in, in 1 Timothy uh, 3 that we ought to, the word he uses is reach out for eldership, something we ought to desire. Not because we desire the office, simply to have a position of prominence, but because we ought to be desiring maturity. Whether we're appointed as elders or not is is immaterial. But we need to be growing up as men in, in Christ. That's what manhood is. And manhood is not just being powerful and aggressive and uh, skiing slopes that nobody else will, uh, will take or running your snowmobiles upside down through the cornices on West Mountain or, or racing your Jeeps across the desert at terminal velocities or, you know, whatever. That, nothing wrong with those things, but manhood is something else, as we'll see. It takes God to make you and me real men. Now let's uh, let's take a look at what he what he says about manhood and what an elder ought to be. An elder must be blameless, not sinless. Blameless. This word has to do with his reputation. It occurs twice in this passage. It has to do with the way other people view us as men. He must be blameless. The husband of but one wife. A man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, that is, we're not playing church. This is serious business. This is God's work that we're involved in. He must be blameless. Repeats it again, which gives us a different category of of concern here. Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to much wine, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable. One who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message, that is, the reliable message, as has been taught, the apostolic message, we would say the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament. So that he can encourage others, number one, number two, refute those who oppose it. So he has a ministry of encouragement through the word, and then he has an apologetic or a, a... responsibility to defend the faith as well. Now, you'll notice that there are two categories of concern divided by this uh, thought that he must be blameless. He must have a good reputation in this sphere, and he must have a good reputation in this sphere. The two spheres are home and his own private life. It struck me uh, in reading through this passage this morning that these are the two areas of concern that are brought up in Deuteronomy 6 in the Hebrew Shema. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel. Uh, the Lord your God is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and your strength. Teach it to your children and, and write it on the doorposts of your house and on your forehead and your hands. Same two areas that Paul is talking about. 
The idea of writing it on the doorposts of your house symbolically places the truth in the home. The home has the, the truth has to be lived in the home. It has to be a matter of the home. Also has to be a matter of the heart. You write it on your head, in your mind, and on your hand in the actions. Because a man is judged by what he is in his home and what he is in his personal life. Unfortunately, the church has always been inclined to put men into positions of leadership who are prominent in the community, who have been successful in business, who have made a great deal of money, who have had a great deal of power in, in the community, and they are placed into positions of leadership in the church on that basis rather than on these two other bases. What is a man in his home? And what is a man in his private life? Those are the, the, the criteria. Those, those are the benchmarks of a man. How's he, how's he doing in those two areas? Now, uh, first in the home, he must be blameless. The husband of but one wife and a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and, and disobedient. Now, there's a great deal of difficulty with this passage. Uh, I can never read this without uh, feeling personally rebuked and, and realizing how, how far short all of us as men come to measuring up in these areas. Uh, it's particularly difficult when it's put the way it is in these translations. Now, let me try to explain what I think Paul is saying. First of all, he says, a man should be a one-woman man. Now, my translation puts it, the husband of but one wife. But the way Paul puts it is a bit clearer, a one-woman man. Now, the question is, what does Paul mean? Well, some would say uh, uh, what he means is that they uh, should not be a polygamist. They should only have one wife at a time. But that's highly unlikely. In fact, impossible. Because Roman law prohibited polygamy. And it would be unnecessary for Paul to say something like that. It wasn't even practiced in Paul's day. So he's not talking about polygamy. Another possibility, and this is one widely held in the church, is that he can't be a divorced man. In other words, he can never have more than one wife. But again, you run into a problem with uh, our Lord's teaching in the book of Matthew about divorce and remarriage. There is one basis on which a man or a woman can remarry after a divorce, and that's if their partner has been unfaithful, sexually unfaithful to them. That destroys the marriage relationship, and they can marry again. The Lord says so, and Paul confirms it in 1 Corinthians uh, 7. So if it were true that a divorced man, who's divorced on the right basis, on a biblical basis, of course, divorce is never a good thing, but if it's based upon a, uh, a biblical separation, uh, he's, not, uh, he's not guilty of any sin. He's, he hasn't defiled himself in any way. And therefore, it seems highly unlikely that Paul would say that man can't serve. It would put divorce in a special category all by itself, a sort of unforgivable sin, which uh, a man could never live down. He could be a murderer or a thief or a liar or almost anything else and repent of that sin and serve as an elder, but he couldn't be divorced, you see. Furthermore, Paul does not say he must not be a divorced man. He says a husband of one wife, and if you take this to mean only one wife in his lifetime, this would disqualify widowers, men whose wives have died and who have remarried. And clearly there's nothing wrong with that. First Corinthians 7 establishes that, as well as other passages. So uh, he could not be talking about divorce. What he's talking about is fidelity. He must be a one 
woman, man. In other words, the only woman in his life is his wife. He doesn't gaze at other women. He doesn't fantasize about other women. He doesn't put his hands all over other women. He doesn't stir up their affections by telling them his secrets. He doesn't seek their constant companionship. He doesn't compare his wife with other women. He doesn't read pornography. He is a one-woman man. He is dedicated and devoted to that woman. Now, there are men like that. You know, you, you, you look around, you see some of your friends, and you see the love they have for their wives and the way they, they behave in public, and, and you, just, you just have to say, that's a one-woman kind of man. I have a friend down in California, Bob Smith. I've often said, if someone came to me and said, I saw Bob Smith in a motel room with another woman, I would have to say, okay, there has got to be an explanation for it. That is either his sister or his mother. You know, there's got to be it because that man is, you know, he is a one-woman man. And nothing he could do, at least at this, at this stage of my understanding, could ever make me believe anything else because I've seen him in his home and I've seen the love that he has for Pearl. Now, you see, that's the kind of man that Paul is talking about, a one-woman man. In other words, is he a good husband? A good husband is a good man. The second qualification in the home is a, is a good parent, a good father. Now, uh, my translation puts it this way, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. The problem with that translation is that you cannot compel belief. There simply is no way in the world that you can make someone become a Christian. Even God doesn't do that. He can't, in one sense, in that he has chosen not to force belief upon us. He couldn't even make Adam believe, or didn't, you see, or Judas, when we look at Jesus' life. So that we're not talking about children who are Christians. This word that's translated believing here can also mean faithful. Paul uses it that way. Back in 1 Timothy 3, he says, this is a faithful saying, for example. Same word. Reliable saying. Responsible saying. That's what the word means when it's used as faithful. A responsible child. Now that we can do something about, you see. Not wild, he says. That's the word that's used for the prodigal son in Luke 15. And uh, not disobedient, not subject to, uh, to rule, incorrigible. And notice the way he puts it, not open to that charge. He's talking about a man who takes responsibility for his children. He does not foist that on his wife. When the school calls and uh, uh, the boy's having a, a problem or girl in school, he doesn't send his wife down to face the music. He goes down to talk to the teacher. Or when his son or daughter uh, is involved, has a, has a drug abuse problem or an alcohol abuse problem, he doesn't just say, well, boys will be boys. You know, they'll, they'll outlive it. They'll outgrow it after a time. He does something about it. He gets serious about moving in to try to meet the needs of that, of that person. We're not talking about the struggles that, that adolescents go through with their parents and parents go through with, with their adolescents. We've all gone through that, both as parents and adolescents. He's not talking about the struggles. He's talking about the attitude toward the struggles. What do we do when our child is charged with being wild or disobedient? What reaction 
do we have? Do we move in on it or do we run from it? You see? He's talking about the responsibility that we take as fathers. Now, do you understand what Paul is saying? You want to see a good man? Then, then take a look at his home. See a good husband? See a one-woman kind of man? Devoted, dedicated to his, li- to his wife? Or does he abuse her verbally? Does he abuse her physically? Does he demand that she serve him? Does he, has he confused male leadership with male domination? See? Or does he, does he love that woman as Christ loves his church? And he's focused on her. She is the most important human being in the, on the face of the earth. And he tells her that she is. And he loves her with all of his heart. That's a good man. And what about his children? Are they perfect? I don't know any perfect children. I haven't had any. Maybe you have. That's not the issue. The question is, what is he doing about it? Is he responsible? Is he taking his obligation as a father seriously? Now, that's, that's the first place to look in the home because that's, you know, that's where it always shows up. That's why our wives know exactly what we're doing. You know, we can fool everybody else, but we can't fool our wives and we can't fool our children. Real godliness shows up at home. Now, the other place it begins to show up is in our, in our personal life. Since an overseer, that's uh, just another term for an elder stressing his responsibility, is entrusted with God's work, you're not playing for nickels and dimes, a serious business, he must be blameless, again, having to do with reputation. Not overbearing, not a man who always wants his way, who demands that everyone cater to him at home and in a way. He runs roughshod over people. Some men confuse uh, strength, I think, with uh, aggressiveness, and they, they, just, they just run over people. And they want everybody to, to put them in the center and center on them and serve them. Paul says he mustn't be an overbearing person. It's not manly. Not quick-tempered. It's not a hothead. It's not touchy. Doesn't explode in anger when, when his wife or his children try to talk to him about something. Doesn't come home from work at night just on edge, ready to blow at a moment's notice. If if everything isn't right, if the house isn't in order, and the kids aren't cleaned up, and kitchen and the, and the dinner isn't ready, he's a tranquil man. He's a peaceful man. He's not touchy, irritable. Uh, not given to much wine. Uh, he is not a practicing alcoholic. The, uh, you understand what I mean by that term. I, I don't mean that to be humorous. There are, there are men who are alcoholics who do not drink. They, um, they are not able to even be temperate in their use of alcohol. Uh, what Paul means is that they, they, they're temperate in their use of alcohol, or if they're alcoholic, they don't drink at all. You see, they, they don't become drunk. That's, that's what's prohibited in Scripture, is drunkenness. So they're self-controlled, not given to much, uh, much wine, not violent. Uh, it's interesting. That's a word that's used in classical Greek for a bully. They don't bully people. They don't verbally abuse their children or their wives. They don't tongue-lash people. They don't run over others because they don't uh, do what they want them to do or what they're supposed to do. Not pursuing dishonest gain. In other words, money is not the bottom line for them. These, these men 
have integrity in their businesses. They tell the truth. They don't uh, say the check is in the mail if the check isn't in the mail. They don't lie about the quality of their product. They're truthful. And they don't make money the bottom line, you see. They're not living for money. They don't love it. There's nothing wrong with money. Paul makes that very clear. But the love of money causes a lot of pain, is the way Paul Paul puts it. And it does. I see a lot of heads going up and down. When you pursue money, when that becomes the center of your life, Paul says, you pierce yourself through with many sorrows. You and your family begin to suffer. So uh, this man is not pursuing uh, dishonest gain. He's honest with his finances. Rather, he must be hospitable. That is, he's devoted to the welfare of others. He has an open heart and an open home. One who loves what is, what is good. Doesn't merely do it, but he, he loves goodness. Who is self-controlled. He's disciplined in his life. He's upright. That is not uptight. That's upright. He is holy and disciplined. Here's a man that, that orders his private world, as uh, Gordon MacDonald puts it. Uh, it's one thing to have your outward, your outer life ordered, to be disciplined in your business life. But here's a man who's disciplined in his inner life as well. He's set aside time to meet God on a regular basis, and he makes those appointments. And he's a man of the Word. He reads it, ponders it, reflects on it, worships God through it, and he asks God to to, to change him to be like uh, the truth that he's being taught. He's a disciplined, self-controlled man. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. In other words, he has a, he has a grip on the word. He, he is taught by the apostles. He reads the scriptures. Discipline is approach to knowing uh, the truth. And uh, he does so so he can encourage others in sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For myself, I, I'm not convinced that an elder has to have the gift of teaching. But he has to know the word, and he has to be able to impart truth to others, even if it means sitting across the uh, uh, table over a cup of coffee and, and sharing with another man uh, the truth that God has taught him. As I've said so many times before, ministry is basically befriending people and imparting truth. That's all. Making friends out of people and, and sharing the truth that God has, has taught you. And here's a man who, who's taking in truth on a regular basis. He doesn't just count on... Sunday morning for input, but he's a man who disciplines himself to know the word and he's able to teach others. And he's able to defend the faith. He's not naive. He's not simplistic. He's thoughtful in his understanding of, of truth. Now, uh, that's what manhood is. As I say, an elder's not someone special. They're not a super class of men who somehow are more inclined toward godliness than anyone else. This is what God has in mind for all of us as men. As a matter of fact, as I said, this is what manliness is. This is what it means to be a man. Someone asked Old Halsby once, the uh, uh, Scandinavian theologian, what, why he became a Christian. He said, I became a Christian in order to become a man. See, we get confused. We, we, we don't understand what it is that makes for manhood. It takes God to make a man. It did in the beginning, and it still does. Uh, Ron showed me a passage that I, that I was unaware of in, in 1 Kings 2 where David is giving his charge to Solomon. David was on his deathbed. Solomon's about to take over the throne. He says to Solomon, show yourself strong and be a man. Love the Lord with all of your heart 
and keep his commandments. That's what it means to be a man. That's what manhood is. So when we talk about about eldership, we, we should not think, well, that excludes me because I'm not an elder and I never will be an elder. This is speaking to all of us. And I, uh, I, I read through a passage like this, and I think, my goodness, what am I doing as an elder in this church? But, you see, this is what we're growing toward. What God sees is the intent of our heart and the inclination of our life. Are we growing toward true manhood? And that's, that's the charge that I'd li- like to leave with you, all of you men, to grow toward authentic Christianity, to grow up in Christ and be a real man. And uh, what I'd like to ask you to do this week, it's going to be a little bit hard, but I want you to do it. Take this passage and sit down with your wife if you're married or your girlfriend if you're not married or if you don't have a girlfriend, another uh, male friend who will be honest with you and go through this list of attributes to the extent that they apply to you uh, if you're single, of course, you don't have a home, then those uh, home requirements for an elder don't obtain. But uh, to the extent that it applies to you, have them tell you how you're doing. Use this as kind of a checklist. And if your wife tells you you're not doing very good and you blow up, then she's right. Say you're, not <laughs> you're not doing very well, and neither am I. And we're all in this thing together, and uh, we're fools if we... Uh, think we don't need help and we don't need someone to objectify our uh, our situation and to give us the kind of help that we need. But I, you know, I don't know about you. I, I have no desire to just be religious. I have no desire to be churchy or just play church. I never have and I never will. But I want to be a man. And I know you do too. And this is what manhood is. And this is how we become men. And we need help from each other to grow up to maturity. Let's, uh, let's pray. Hard words for us, Lord. Very, very difficult to understand and apply. But we know it's truth. It has about it the ring of truth, and our hearts respond to it. We men want to grow up to become everything that you've called us to be. We pray that... Uh, As Jonathan did David, we would increasingly learn as men to strengthen one another's hand and uh, strengthen our grip on you. Lord, thank you for the encouragement that you give, for the assurance that our destiny is certain, that you love us to the end, that you're, you're within us and alongside us and available to us, both to forgive when we fail and to give grace to comply. And all we can say at this point, Lord, is that we want it. We desperately want it. And you've told us that you'll give us the desires of our hearts. So make us into men. Make us what you've intended us to be, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.